so in the first chapter of James, uh, James was emphasizing the importance of surrendering to God and being humble before him and how, um, how that position of humility, we talked last week about how that position of humility allows God to take us through a process. Sometimes that process involves trials, but we need to stay surrendered, humble before him, looking to him, not looking at the trial, because that way he can take us through it. And I, talk, I used the phrase leveling up a lot last week. What he wants to do what God wants to do is bring us to a place where our first reaction is to humble ourselves before him and allow him to do what it is he needs to do, not only in a situation, but mostly in our hearts. Because this, the heart, is where everything else in our life comes from, right? Uh, and, and so in, in chapter two, uh, we're going to get into this right now, and we're going to see that it's kind of in, in two sections, Chapter two, I mentioned last week, I think, that uh, the book of James is more like a, it's less like a letter and more like a greatest hits of James's best advice. So it reads kind of like Proverbs in places, reads kind of like one of the wisdom books, like Ecclesiastes, that sort of thing. And so in chapter two, it's, it's really like verses one through 13 and then 14 through 25. It's two different sections. He's talking about two different topics. But as we go through, it's really underneath this theme of God, it's an all or nothing prospect. Serving God by degrees or serving him partially or partially obeying is, uh, is ineffective. It's not going to, it keeps us out of the process of what he's trying to do in our lives. And, and, it, and it keeps us actually at a distance from him. And James, I, I love James, but reading the book of James is like, wow, I thought I was better than this. You know, because he spotlights a lot of things and turns, turns that spotlight onto our hearts and he asks us the hard questions. Like, here's the standard. Is that what you're doing? And so we're going we're, we're gonna to get into it. We're going to see in, in, in both sections he's talking about uh, the difference between living all the way for God or living for him by degrees. And he's going to dive into sort of a truth that we had been talking about here. I've been mentioning for the last three weeks about the, there are only three things that you can be in control of in your life. They are your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions. Those are the only three things that you can be in control of. Everything else is outside. It's beyond your pay grade. It's outside of your scope. It's not your lane. Your lane is my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions. Your thoughts become things in the real world. And that progression ultimately reveals what's in your heart. And the example that James is pointing to us, uh, pointing us to, to highlight really our thoughts and attitudes, is this, this idea of giving people preferential treatment. So let's read the scripture. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, oh, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there. Or you say, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judgment is an attitude. We, we talk about being in, in, in a clique, right? Being in a certain group. Well, we just get each other. This, these are just my people. We are so segmented 
in our society, a lot of it, it is by choice. We choose with whom we spend our time. We choose where we're going to place our personal investments, where we're going to place our, our investments of our time and our energy, especially when relationships are concerned. But it's not really uncommon to hear people talk about, oh, well, this is my tribe. These are my people. You know, this is my group. This is my crew. This is, you know, these, are, these are the people that I just, I just click with. And, and there's nothing wrong. I just want to say, there's nothing wrong with having people that you are just personally closer friends with than other people, right? Jesus was that way. Jesus had 12, but he would be there for anyone. Jesus had 12, but his circle wasn't just 12. His circle was everyone he came in contact with. But there were 12 that also chose to walk with him and support him and be there for him. And so if we think of it like our tribe, well, those are my 12. Those are my people. But we can't be limited to just those people. It's, it's bad for all the people that God brings into our path who he wants us to be a light for, and it's bad for us because we run the risk then of being in this echo chamber where, well, the things that I think are the things that you think, so these are the things that are right and everybody else is wrong, and it brings distance. It gives the enemy a foothold to bring division. What my desire is for us as a house is that when someone comes walking in, if they're here for the very first time, they feel like they can say, oh, this feels like home. I feel welcome here. I don't feel judged here. I don't feel like I've done something wrong. I don't feel like I can't walk back in next Sunday, right? And I, I think, and of course, I, I want for us, this is something we continue to pursue, right? Nobody's perfect in any of this, but, but I think that as a church body, our hearts are turned towards uh, making sure that everyone feels like they've got a place, like they've got a voice, like they matter, like they're important when they walk into these doors. But that same heart, as James is pointing out, has to continue when you walk outside these doors, when you walk outside. So he's talking about favoritism. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Have you not discriminated, if you do, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, there's, there's a really practical thing about, he's mentioning showing favoritism to somebody who looks like they have an advantage, right? Now, the way of the world, we, we tend to think that it's kind of natural to have these biases and to have these, well, I, 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 I gravitate more towards this type of person and towards that type of person. But James is really throwing a hard line out for us. Our biases are actually representative of thoughts that we've had about people and an attitude that we have that becomes a form of judgment. It's an attitude we form, and he says, based around evil thoughts that we entertain and we embrace. If we hold on to it long enough, then it sinks into our subconscious, and we may act upon that ingrained thought subconsciously, even if we're thinking to ourselves, oh, I need to, I need to treat everyone the same. We may have these deeper ingrained thoughts that have been sort of a part of our heart that we need to Ask the Lord to seek us, see if there's any wicked way within us, try us, and take those things out so that we can, we can be in a state of integrity where the thing that we're consciously thinking is the thing that we're subconsciously thinking as well, where our heart, is, our heart and our, our actions and our attitudes are all in congruence, a reflection of one another. Vince Lombardi, he said, he said it this way. He would tell his players, watch your thoughts because they become your beliefs. 
Watch your beliefs because they become your words. Watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. But you notice it all begins with your thoughts. It all begins with the things that we're willing or unwilling to submit to God, to ask him to purify us from. He's, uh, in chapter one, we, we, James wrote that, uh, that God has a process that he's taking us through. He said to mature and to perfect us. So defiled thoughts, as James called it in chapter one, stem from an unsubmitted heart. God's kingdom and the nature of Christ runs contrary to the nature of humanity. Right? We value certain things as humans as important and essential that are oftentimes in opposition with what Christ valued as important and essential. And that tension is what, uh, is what creates some of these areas in our lives that we're not quite ready to give over to God. These unsubmitted things uh, become, un- become evil or defiled thoughts, which become attitudes and actions that take us out of the process God is trying to move us through. So James 2, 5 through 7. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to them, those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name uh, of him to whom you belong? He's trying to point out for us here that, that we have a tendency to try to prefer those people who seem like they have an advantage, right? We have an innate tendency to want to gravitate toward the cool kid. We have an innate tendency to want to move towards a relationship that we think could somehow benefit us. And that, at its core, is the opposite of the nature of Christ. And we, I mean, I, I do it, you've all done it, and it's one of those things that when we recognize it in ourselves, we need to go to God. We need to take it to him. We need to repent and we need to say, God, if there's anything that I've been doing um, that is separating me from your people, then it's separating me from you. And it may be separating your people from you. Especially when people know that you spend every Sunday here. You spend every Sunday faithfully in a church building, and then we go out and we misrepresent God by preferring someone else and not giving them the time of day. So it separates us from him, separates us from the people he's trying to minister to, and it separates them from him. It's all bad, however you want to however you want to slice it, right? Um, and we'll do that. We'll do that time and time and time again if we haven't submitted that area of our lives to God. God, help me to see every person that I come in come in contact with as someone who you have created, someone who's fearfully and wonderfully made, someone who has value not because of what they can bring me, but because of what you put into them. Help me to see everyone as you see them. Open up my eyes, open up my heart, and and help me to find you in them. It's really tempting to embrace the values of the world around us. And, I mean, just empirically, like survival of the species, it doesn't make a lot of sense to want to 
invest a lot of your time in, in something that doesn't seem like it can provide an advantage for you, right? It's, it just makes more sense, like, if I want to get wealthier, I need to hang out with wealthier people. You know, it's, if I want to be more popular, I got to hang out with more popular people. If I want to do this, I got to hang out with that type of person. But that is worldly wisdom. If you'll humble yourself before him, he will exalt you in due time, right? He will exalt you in due time. So let's look at James 2, 8 through 13. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, and if that is you this morning, I really wish that you would go to the police and confess to them, <laughs> kind of leave me out of it, but feel conviction and then go. Uh, so if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So one of the hang-ups that you hear historically about the law and why Jesus came to get rid of the law and establish the new covenant, we always hear, well, it's just too hard to, to observe all those laws. Too hard to observe every little thing about every feast and everything you should wear, everything you shouldn't eat. All the, all the traditional uh, Hebrew laws were just so hard that Jesus came to make it easy. Love God and love people. And I said, that's simple, but not easy. It's simple, but not easy. It's actually a higher standard. You can follow rules all day long with a grumbly heart and a bad attitude and still kind of be in the right. But Jesus said, no, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that standard that standard is high. And, and he's saying here to, to break some of the law is to break all of the law, right? So if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, or if you do obey your mother and father, but you slander someone else who's a brother or sister, then you've, you've, you've broken it. Like you, you are either, we're either following Jesus or we're not. We're either obeying or we're not. We don't obey in part. We don't obey by degrees. We have a tendency to rationalize the things that are either too hard for us to do or the things that, are, that we maybe don't want to do because we're not ready to give that part up to God yet. We have a way of rationalizing away all of the stuff that doesn't necessarily matter as much to us to get right. But James, who is super hardcore, uh, says this to us in, 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 in verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, a Harvard professor and author, Martha Beck, said it this way. She said, how you do anything is how you do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. Obeying him in the big and the small ways. So if our intent is to obey God by degrees, and this is, this is what he was helping me to see once again as I was reading through chapter two this week. 
if we choose to obey God by degrees, God, I'm going to obey that. I'm not quite ready to obey this. The one I'm actually saying is, I don't really want to obey you. God, I'll do this, but that I'm going to keep for myself. That I'm not going to give over to you. That I don't trust you with. This is fine because I feel like I don't even like that anyway, so I'll just give you that. But this over here, this is my precious. This is my thing. I need to keep this. I'm not going to give this over to you. So to try to obey God by degrees is basically telling God, I don't really want to obey you at all. I'm not ready to give up some things. I'm not ready to move forward in what your plan is. My plan is better for that. And that high standard of going all the way in God, that high standard actually points to our need for mercy because we are not going to get it right all the time. We are, try as we may, as pure of heart as we might continually try to become, there are going to be times when we mess up. We're not going to get it right. We're not going to do the thing. We're not going to be perfect reflections of him all the time. And that points to our need for mercy. And every time we ask him for that, if you've ever asked God, forgive me. And if you've received that from him and had that weight lifted off of you, that's a tremendous gift that he's asking for us to show to others. And for us who are in Christ, if we cannot express that to others, then James is laying it down and saying, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This issue of judgment, this issue of keeping things reserved in our heart that are just for us, that's an issue of our thoughts and our attitudes, right? So in the last half of this chapter, he starts talking about our actions. And this is where we get into faith without works is dead. So we're just going to dive into this. James 2, 14 through 25. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is, yet again, James is reminding us we got to be all or nothing. We can't follow God by degrees. We can't follow him in part. And, and this particular verse, I think for people who have been in church a long time, can hit hard. Because how many times? You've probably done it. You've probably been the recipient of it. There's a hurt. There's a pain. There's a need. And you go to someone about it, and they say, oh, man, that's rough. Dude, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for you. All right, bye. And they move on. And nothing has changed for you. And makes what complicates the matter worse is if the person who told you, no, 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 I, that's hard. Yeah, I really, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about that. And then they never do, right? Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Even, I'm, and, and don't get me wrong, the, if there are some needs that we don't have the skill, we don't have the means, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the wisdom, some, some needs we don't have the capacity to meet for someone. I'm not saying you have to meet every need that comes along with you. 
I, I'm saying that we can't promise someone like, oh, I'll pray about that and then not follow through, right? We, we're, we're, we're not here just to let folks know, oh, you know what? There's a God that can help you. Boom. Done. Did my work for today. We're not there for that. I mean, if they're coming to you, they already know there's a God who can help them. They're looking for a way to him, right? So our job is to walk people through things to the extent that the Lord is leading us to. I'm not saying you have to meet everybody's needs. I'm not saying you can. I can't meet everyone's needs. But God is asking for me, if somebody approaches me with a need, to pray with them, to be as much of a source of comfort as I can be, to meet it as much as I can, and then if they're in need of something else, to maybe help them walk to the next step. What he's not calling me to do is to acknowledge they have a need and then turn away right? That's not what we're called to. Um, faith and deeds working together is the definition of obedience. Faith on the inside eventually has to look like something on the outside. And this, and this particular example that he's giving just, I, I think probably, for me, it hit a personal note as, as a believer because it's, it's just too common to hear a need that you don't quite have the resources to meet and it becomes overwhelming and so you don't do anything. But even in that situation, actually following through and going to God yeah. and interceding yeah. and praying with the person is actually the best thing that we can do for anyone. Right. Sometimes we feel like, oh, that's not enough. I, I couldn't meet their need. I didn't have the money that they needed, or I, I couldn't fix their car like they needed, or I don't have a way for them to get out of this situation. I can't help them. Yes, we can. We can walk. We can comfort. We can display the love of God. We can pray with someone. We can pray for someone. We can tell others and gather others to pray and to consistently intercede for them. We can do that. We can do that. And that is faith that is more alive. That's, that's doing something that corresponds to what we declare we believe. And that's what God's asking of us. He's asking for us not to give people spiritual platitudes or to give, us, give people unfulfilled promises. He's, he's not asking us to obey him and serve him in part. He's asking us to follow through. Too many things in the world let people down, and he's asking us to not be one of those things. He's asking us to walk people and point them to the one who can do all things. James 2, 18 and 19. Someone will say, I have faith, or you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. That's good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That's hard. James is saying here that if we have a belief that doesn't result in our corresponding action, if we have a belief that we're not willing to walk out with somebody, then what we're really saying is, I believe God exists. And that's it. If that belief doesn't result in something happening through us that makes a difference in the world, then all we're doing is acknowledging the existence of a God. We're not vessels for who we say we know him to be. He is the healer. He is the provider. He, he is the victor. He, he, is, he is the one who brings peace. And if we're not 
vessels for that to come into the world, then all we're doing is saying, yes, there is a God. And James says, in a really mean way, he says, that's awesome. Demons believe that too. But the difference is, demons shudder in awe at that knowledge. And you don't, is what he's saying to us. Man, it is hard. Man, James, how would you like to have been in James's church? That would have... Actually, that would have, I probably could use that a lot, really. Uh, and in, in case James hasn't challenged us enough with just that, right, he finishes by emphasizing the stories of two very different people. And he finishes out here by driving home this point about, okay, don't discount anyone. God's plan, his process is for everyone, regardless of what you have been taught to think about them. Right? James 2, 20 through 26 once again, how would you like to go to his church? You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. That, that means Abraham knew who God was, and that informed and directed his actions. I know who God is, and so I'm going to act like I know who God is. I can, I know, I've said I can trust him, so I'm going to act like I can trust him. I'm going to make my life look like the things I just said. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So James throwing out this example of faith and deeds working together doesn't just stop at like the father of nations, the superhero of the faith who we all think is awesome and, you know, he's uh, got all the stories and he's, he's got songs, you know, Father Abraham, y'all remember that one? Nobody's singing like, Sister Rahab, nobody's doing that. But, but James... James, in verse 24, goes there, and he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by their faith alone, not by their belief alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies, and she sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So, Abraham, uh, James is throwing out this wide spectrum, right? Faith without works is dead. You can't serve God in part. No, we shouldn't show partiality to anyone. We can't serve God in part in that way. And to show you that, I'm going to remind you, hey, our standard is Abraham. Our standard for faith and action is Abraham. By the way, our standard for faith and action is also Rahab the prostitute. That's right. yes, yeah. Can you act like that? He's saying, here's the standard. The standard isn't measured by what that person has or doesn't have in the natural. The standard isn't measured by what their job is. The standard is not measured by how society views them. The standard is very different. In, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, he, he, he says to, the Lord says to Samuel, I am looking at the heart. Man looks at the outward things. But don't look at those things. The Lord looks at the heart. And that's what James is reminding us here. He's saying, okay, the standard is not 
anything in the physical world that you think the standard is. The standard, church, is where is your heart? And is your life producing fruit? Yeah. Is your life producing? Is your life an example of the things that you claim to believe? That's the standard. And we can look to Abraham and say, wow, I want to be like that. And he's reminding this very divided culture, like our culture, He's reminding this very divided first century culture, can you look at Abraham and say, I want to be like that? And can you look at Rahab and say, I want to be like that? Because I'm seeing beyond occupation and status and wealth, and I'm looking at the heart and look at what she did. Can we say that? Abraham's faith was made complete by his actions, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Rahab's faith and her deeds working together also results in us considering her righteous. Man, it's awesome. I love, and James is reminding us how God breaks down those barriers that we build up. And he's asking us, don't build them back. He, he's saying that to us. I'm bringing you on a process that is going to mature and perfect you. And as I'm tearing down old paradigms, as I'm tearing down walls, as I'm tearing down perceptions that you built up that are wrong, don't build them back up. Don't build them back up. Trust me. Move forward in the process with me. 